But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, I, uh, you, you may notice uh, I've got a new Bible. Uh, this is a birthday gift from my wife. I've got my name on it. That way, in case I forget it during the message, I can turn around and see that my name's here. But um, I'm going to be, and, and you'll notice it's a bigger Bible. And you can, th- you can take this as one of two things. Number one, I've always heard that the bigger the Bible, the better the preacher. I've always heard that, that the bigger the Bible, the better the preacher. Or you could also see it as, I may be entering in the prime of my middle-aged years, and my eyes need maybe just a little bit larger of a font. Now, I'm more fond of the first explanation than what I am of the second. And then when it gets to the place, as I am growing older here with you all, and I get to the place that I need the little reader glasses, it's not because I can't see without them. They just make me look more dignified, more refined. Okay, it's not that I need help. So I'm just, that's a, that's a futuristic thing right there, okay? Uh, I'm also this morning, um, you know, some of you have noticed um, that, you know, if you have like a new international version, new living translation, something like that, our versions have differentiated just a little bit. Um, there's, there's a couple different types of Bible translations uh, there is literal translations, and then there's what they call dynamic translations. The literal translations translate it more word for word from the original language, and the, the dynamic versions translate it more of a phrase for phrase type translation. Um, I am a I, I'm a word for word kind of guy. I feel like that teach that that fits my teaching, my speaking, my preaching style much better. Uh, so. Uh, this morning, this is my preferred version that my wife bought for me uh, for my birthday. This is the English Standard Version, which is more of a word-for-word translation. There's nothing wrong with dynamic translations, nothing wrong with the phrase-for-phrase. Phrase. This just kind of matches. So you know, with, this, with my new Bible, my better preaching Bible, uh, it's going to be ESV, and, and I'll have at least our core scripture up on the screen uh, to go with us. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to start by reading verse 9. And like I said, you can follow along on the screen if you'd like, or you can just follow along in your own, your own Bible. Verse 9 out of chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see that what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Will you pray with me this morning? God, thank you. Uh, For this day, thank you for an opportunity to be here, to be in your word, uh, to draw from it, to learn from it, to, to, to be comforted and challenged by it. God, this morning I pray that you would open hearts, you would open ears to hear the word that you have for us this morning. As always, God, I pray for myself that your Holy Spirit would inspire me, would speak through me, that they would hear your word, because they didn't come to hear a word from Ben, but they came to hear a word from God, and that's what I pray that, I, uh, that I'm faithful to this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So far in this study, we've looked at a couple different things. The first, we looked at the fall, the reason that we need a redeemer. And we looked at Genesis, the first three chapters, about the account of Adam and Eve falling into disobedience and into sin. Last week, Pastor Thomas, uh, if you could understand what he was saying, um, he, he, he brought the good news to us, the answer to that, the the, the, the answer, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and that the fall was the reason we needed a Redeemer, and the Redeemer himself is named Jesus Christ. Now, with those two things having been said, we now come into a portion of this study where something is required of us. Jesus has done the work. The finished work of the cross, the finished work of the resurrection, that we can partake with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. But there comes now a response that's required of us. And that's kind of the word that we're going for today. And that response is the word repentance. Now, if we're being honest, repentance is one of those churchy words that you hear a lot in the middle of messages, you hear in Bible studies, you may hear in a Sunday school class, but oftentimes it's not a word that's really broken down and taught on to where we can understand what the Bible actually tells us that repentance is. And if we're all being real honest, most of us will probably think that repentance, when we see, when we think about the word repentance, we think about Old Testament. We may think of some crazy-haired dude with a beard that's unkempt, that's running around like crazy, living in the wilderness, you know, calling down fire of God, calling out she-bears to attack teenagers who just made fun of him, you know, that kind of thing. We think of repentance in that way. We may think of some person that stands on a street corner with a sign yelling for repentance, calling out that the end is near. You see, we have a mindset most of the time. We have the tendency to think that repentance is an Old Testament concept, is an Old Testament principle of an angry God who's just looking to rain down fire and to bring judgment upon the earth. And that really can't be any further from the truth. Because this morning, what I hope to do is to challenge you in your walk with Jesus Christ. I hope to convict you if you are not walking in the repentance that the Word of God requires us to walk in. I hope that's what is accomplished from this Word this morning. Whenever Jesus arrived, for some reason, for some people, there's this transition that takes place in our mind that we think, oh, okay, Old Testament God full of wrath, full of fear, full of anger, uh, you know, just full of all of this frustration and just looking to pour it out on people. And they call for repentance and it's loud and it's loud and it's loud. But then Jesus shows up and he ushers in this, this, this love, this grace, this mercy. And yes, Jesus does every bit of that. But it's not this fluffy little picture that sprinkles pixie dust on everything and just makes everything la la great okay mark chapter one john the baptist shows up now if you want your old testament crazy hair wild beard eating bugs eating wild honey dressed in rags if you want that kind of repentance guy john the baptist is your dude all right because here he is showing up on the scene and he his message is calling for repentance his message is making the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. And this dude is just like crazy out there. 
So John's message is that of repentance. And then in in chapter 1, about the middle of the chapter, around verse 14, it says that John had died and Jesus coming out of the wilderness begins his earthly ministry. And you want to know what Jesus' first message was? The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. Make no mistake about it. As a New Testament church, repentance is the key to our relationship with God. Without repentance, you're just part of a a social club that meets at an awkward time on a Sunday morning. If there's no repentance, there's no relationship with Christ. If there's no repentance, there's no hope of an eternity in heaven. If there's no repentance in him, himself, you are following a false gospel. You are a nominal Christian, which means a Christian in name only, that there's no fruit of salvation in your life. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning, the fruit of faith, because we know that we are saved by faith in him. And faith, my brothers and sisters, looks like something. Faith looks like something, and the first thing that faith looks like is repentance, now, let's, let's kind of break down this passage just a little bit here that we read. Um, starting with verse 9 says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, this is a second letter to the church at Corinth, that Paul's following up a first letter. And he's saying that, you know, I, um, I, I rejoice because you were grieved. Well, grieved by what? Paul had to write a corrective letter to the church at Corinth because they weren't getting it right. They weren't doing this thing the way that they should be doing it. And Paul had to write a corrective letter. And he kind of had to rebuke them. He had to correct them. As an apostle, as a leader over the churches, Paul had to write, uh, if you are a Big Bang Theory in here with Sheldon Cooper, he had to write a very strongly worded email to the church at Corinth. And as a result of that, here in the middle of a very personal letter, Paul writes in verse 9 that, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Some translations will, instead of the word grieve, they'll say suffer. Number one lesson we need to learn about this is grief and suffering is part of it. Amen? Okay, two, good. Grief and suffering is part of it. Jesus talked about that just about more than anything else he talked about. He talks about us taking on his suffering, us taking part not only in his resurrection we love that we love taking part in the life and the resurrection of jesus christ but we also have to partake in his death that's not the greatest news but what lays on the other side of that is the best news that the world has ever heard and i think it's interesting here in this passage he says for you felt a godly grief And then verse 10 says, For godly grief uh, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It leads to life without regret. Sounds good, doesn't it? 
Anybody, anybody would like that, want that for your life? I want to live a life where I have no regrets. Okay, thank you. Anybody at home, life without regrets? Okay, good. But then he goes on, and he says, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's two types of grief here in this passage. There's two types of sorrows that Paul begins to talk about. And that's kind of what I want to unpack a little bit this morning. And I would encourage you, I'm going to give you a permission to look at your phone. I'm going to encourage you to look at your phone if you'd like to. If you'll go to the, the FCC Grayson website, there's a take notes pass section on there. You can open that up and follow along and take notes with this. And, and I know no one will be on social media. I mean, that's just, that's not even an option. But le- I want us to look at these two types of repentance, these two types of grief, these two types of sorrow that leads us into repentance. The first is worldly grief. The second is godly grief. So let's look at worldly grief for just a few moments, this worldly repentance. And as I was reading this week, studying for this, um, I'm going to use and borrow the terminology from Matt Chandler. He talks about horizontal repentance and vertical repentance and worldly repentance is horizontal and i want to give us a few markers a few characteristics of what worldly repentance actually looks like worldly repentance is passive worldly repentance is passive which means, and for those of you who have kids in here, we've talked about this a couple times, but for those of you who have kids in here, you will recognize this type of repentance very quickly. It's not repentance. It's not being sorry about the fact that you did it. You're sorry because you got caught. You're not sorry that you did it. You're sorry that, and, that you're going to pay some con- you're going to have consequences for this. You got caught up in it. Man, had you not gotten caught, you would have continued to do it. You see, worldly repentance deals with our sin from a way of we try to tame our sin. We don't try to do away with it. And that's wor- a worldly perspective on how to deal with sin in our lives. I, uh, anybody ever fall down like a YouTube rabbit hole? I mean, you go like to YouTube for like one thing and then you wind up watching ducks on a skateboard for some reason. I don't know where, how we get there, but all of a sudden you're there. Well, I was doing some type of deep theological research. I feel 100% confident of it at one point, but I wound up watching a live video from this alligator farm. And this dude... He's like, y'all want to see me stick my head in its mouth? What? And then the people are like, yeah, let's do it. He's like, I've had this, this alligator since it was small. It's my pet. He's my, uh, you know, I'm just like. And this guy's like, don't worry. We just fed him. He's not hungry. Guy sticks his head in there. Guess what happens? Chomp. 
<laughs> the alligator bites down his head and you can just hear him squalling. <laughs> He's like, and don't worry, he didn't, he didn't die. I wouldn't have shared this story if he would, that would have ended that way. But they finally get him free. People come rushing in there and they get him free. And he gets up and these people that are watching are absolutely shocked that this alligator bit him. And this guy is shocked because this alligator bit him. An alligator is an apex predator. It's a dinosaur. It survived all type of extinctions. Its sole purpose is to eat things. If it's not eating things, it's thinking about eating things. But all of a sudden, we are just absolutely shocked that this apex predator, who has nothing else to do but swim around and eat, has now taken a bite out of some dude's head. And you know what? I do not blame the alligator at all. <laughs> if you think it's okay to stick your head in the alligator's mouth and tempt it, I'm for the alligator. That's all I'm saying. You see, he was taming the alligator. But the alligator's instinct is to inflict harm, to inflict damage. Maybe we could say that it would be to still kill and destroy. Folks, can I submit to you that when we try to tame sin in our lives, we're doing the same thing. And then we get shocked whenever we sin again. Oh, I can't believe that. Worldly sin is also very prideful. It's very prideful. Have you ever heard, kind of like an apology similar to this? Well, I am truly sorry if what I said offended you in any type of way. So if you're offended, I'm sorry that I offended you. It's like that's no kind of an apology. That's just projecting fault and blame of your sin onto someone else. And that's what we like to do, isn't it? It can't be our fault. There has to be a justification to why we're doing these things. Oh, it's because of this, or oh, it's because of that. Or had they not done that, or had they not done this. And you know what? One of the biggest moments of sin that we like to project and carry around with us and have actually made friends with is the sin of being offended. If, if someone offends you, you have made the choice to be offended. You cannot say anything to me that, that will offend me unless I allow it to offend me. And that's one of the things that just about every person that has served under me on staff or in a ministry capacity as a pastor, one of my first talking points with them is that ministry can be one of the most damaging things that you'll ever do in your life if you take it personally. It can look personal. It can feel personal. They can even use your name in attacking you, but it is not personal. Why? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. 
Being offended is a personal choice. And we'll allow that to creep into our hearts and be just this force that eats away from us at the very core of who we are from the inside out. And that affects our relationship with Jesus Christ. Worldly repentance, the last one I want to talk to you about in worldly repentance. Worldly repentance is also powerless. It's powerless. I want to submit something to you. If you are in here this morning or you're watching online and you claim to be a Christian, you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, have given him your life, and there's no transformation in your life, you may want to revisit what gospel you've received. If you are not different than what you were, I'm not talking about struggling. I'm not talking about having moments of sin. Listen, we all sin. And if you think that you're without sin, according to 1 John, that's a sin in itself. No one is without sin. We all struggle. We all have our faults. We all have our failures. But if your life looks no different than before you received Jesus Christ, then you really don't have Jesus Christ at all. It's quiet in here. And, well, I've already stepped in it. Let me just go a little bit further. Why not? If, if the reason that you came to Jesus Christ was because at six years old, seven years old, at a VBS or a Sunday school class, somebody talked to you about hell and you got scared, but there's never been any type of turning your life over to him and your heart over to him and being transformed, being made a new creation, then you need to revisit what you've received. Because you may be thinking that you're following Jesus, but if there's no transformation... You need to revisit that. And on that 2 Corinthians 5.17 verse, the, it says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Not a reformed creation. Not a remade creation. Not a redone or a reinvigorated. It says a new creation. God has made you new. And if you've really received Jesus Christ then your life needs to look like that. Remember, faith has fruit, and it looks like something. Is this okay this morning? You all all right? We, we are? Okay. It's a couple of us anyhow. Good. All right. Now let's get to what godly repentance looks like. So this is the vertical repentance, okay? And these points, I want to give you six markers or six characteristics of what biblical repentance looks like now these aren't original to me uh this was uh, i've got it scribbled here uh thomas watson he was a puritan writer uh wrote in the doctrine of reformation of repentance uh, it's about a 90 page little pamphlet but it gives us six markers as to what godly repentance looks like and he said the first marker, the first characteristic of godly repentance or vertical repentance is that of sight. Now we may, we may think that that's, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but church, being able to see sin in your life is a grace and a mercy from God. To be able to have in your life something revealed to you, something that you become aware of that's actually harming your relationship with him, that is a gift of grace from God. And I'll tell you the best biblical example that I can think of, of being able to see 
sin, having sight for sin, and that leading you into repentance is found in Luke chapter 15, where the prodigal son had run off with his inheritance. He had blown all of his money on partying a wild lifestyle. Then all of a sudden it says that a famine hits the land, and he hires himself out because he has no food to eat, and he finds himself eating out of a hog's trough. Not like the hog's trough, which is fantastic down here, by the way, if you're a barbecue fan. But eating pig slop. He found himself eating pig slop. And one of the most beautiful phrases, in my opinion, in the Bible is when it says that the prodigal son came to himself. What did that ha- how did that happen? He looked around and he saw what kind of state that he was in. He was in a place. This is, this is a young man who was basically royalty. He was the father's son. And now he found himself eating, with, he, eating slop with the hogs and he came to himself. His eyes were opened to the sin in his life. And it led him to repentance and returning back to the father's house. Have you ever had times like that in your life where you come to yourself and you go, what in the world am I doing here? Why am I doing this? This is sin. This is wrong. This is terrible. This is bad. Why am I doing this? Church, never let God revealing your sin to you go unappreciated in your life. Sight for sin is a grace from God. To go with a word that's in this 2 Corinthians chapter here, we we see the word grieve or sorrow. You know, vertical repentance, godly, biblical repentance has a sorrow to it. And I I the the story that comes to my mind with this is in Luke chapter 7, and it begins in verse 36. Jesus has been invited to a Pharisee's house. And as he is dining, as he is reclining, as he is visiting, a woman of the city comes in and comes up behind Jesus. She has an alabaster box full of ointment, precious, precious ointment. And she begins to wash, she breaks it and begins to wash Jesus' feet with this ointment and dry it. Uh, Wash it also with, with her tears, dry his feet with her hair. And we see this, this sorrow. As I wish that I could tell you that godly repentance is always going to have you feeling great. It's always going to be a happy experience, always going to be a pleasant experience. But if I told you that, and if I led you that way as your pastor, then I would not be leading you biblically. Because that's not what the Bible instructs us that godly biblical repentance looks like. It will lead us into sorrow. But we'll get to a difference here in a minute because earthly sin will lead us into misery and into sorrow. But godly repentance, it will lead us to sorrow also because of the weight of our sin. When we see, when we get sight for sin in our lives, then we see how negatively it's impacting not only us and our relationship with God, but those around us also. 
And see, and one of the dangers in trying to repent worldly is that most of the time, the things that we do to try to self-medicate for our sins are the same things that we struggle with, and we just continue to make ourselves more miserable because we don't know where else to turn. It's just this one thing that we know that we can do to make ourselves feel better for a moment. And then we can't believe that we've been duped back into that place. This one, when it says that she was a lady of the city, that, it's not a good thing. Right? That doesn't mean that she had an apartment downtown. Okay, This woman was most likely a prostitute. And let's be honest, no one, no little girl that I've ever known of at first, second, third grade level has ever said, I want to be a prostitute when I grow up. Most of the time, the events, the things that happen that someone that's happened to someone who finds themselves in that place is absolutely heartbreaking. And if you've ever been on a mission trip with us to the Dominican Republic and you've talked to those young ladies and those kids who are, who are in the prostitution ring down there, you will absolutely have your heart ripped out when you find out why or how they got there. See, and the Pharisee, Simon in this was like, was thinking to himself, I can't believe that Jesus is allowing this woman to do this. And that led Jesus into a parable about forgiveness, about repentance. And who do you think would be more grateful, the one that's been forgiven more or the one that's been forgiven less? You see, we so often in our self-righteousness are quick to pass judgment because of the places that people find themselves in. We find ourselves all too often, and I am preaching to myself here, we find ourselves all too often in the seat of the Pharisee instead of the seat of Jesus in this parable. Thirdly, godly grief, godly sorrow, godly repentance comes with confession confession of sin confession of sin to god and confession of sin to others so now let me let me unpack this here for just a little bit because i i saw some heads go from this part to this part when i say confessing our sins to one another we see this as an example Psalm 32. I'm actually going to talk about two psalms this morning that we didn't cover this summer. But Psalm 32, David, this is David, who's just, I mean, he's just dealing with the fallout of his sin in his life where he has had, had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Then he decides that the best thing for him to do to cover that up so that no one would find out about it was murder her husband. So we have this chapter where David is making this confession after being caught up in it. He goes, God, my sins are eating away at my bones. He says, my transgression is eating me away from the inside. And we see him repenting first vertically to God because he said, God, I have sinned against you. Now think about that statement for just a minute. I've sinned against you. What did he do? I, I just told you. What did he? What were the two things that he did? He had an affair, right? And then he murdered a dude. 
so he wouldn't find out about the affair he had with his wife. But yet David's talking about this, I have sinned against God. No, dude, you've sinned against her and against him and against these people. I think what the Bible is trying to teach us there is that any sin in our life, no matter what, no matter what way it's directed, is a sin against God. And we have to first and foremost Take care of that with vertical repentance. Now, in Psalm chapter 40, if you fast forward just eight chapters, you see David talking about again that I have made known the great works of God by confessing my sin in the great assembly. Make no mistake about it. When I, when I encourage you and tell you that confession of sin one to another is part of biblical repentance, I'm not talking about seeking out forgiveness from someone else for your sins. I'm not talking about me going to Brett and expecting Brett to be able to wipe my slate clean of any sin that I have done. It doesn't work that way. But what it does do, whenever David confessed of his sins in the great assembly, he was bringing glory to God. He was praising God's name like, this is how terrible of a person I am. This is how horrible I am. But yet God was faithful to forgive me. And I think that we really, we need a deeper understanding of just how sin affects our lives. If you look in the Old Testament, you see the way that people responded to sin in their lives was almost laughable at times. David talking about this, it's eating away my bones. Jeremiah punched his thigh when he thought about the sin in his life. Ezra pulled out his hair. Now listen, please, this is not the practical application part of my message. Okay, please don't, don't go around punching yourself in the thigh, pulling your hair out because of your sins. It's not that complicated, all right? But we need to understand that there is a weight to our sins. And we should have visceral reactions to our sins like jeremiah like david like ezra the next one is shame now this is this is where another one of those words that you have to be careful within what kind of context that you're using it because we saw in the first message of this series about shame you know that the the fall sin leads us into shame that they knew, Adam and Eve knew that they were naked and they covered themselves and they hid from God because of their sin. But there's a shame that godly repentance, godly sorrow, and godly grief brings. And it's a beautiful thing. And I want to take us back to Luke chapter 7 with the story of the young lady who had broken the alabaster, alabaster box of oil over Jesus' feet. When they're having this conversation back and forth and he's giving this parable of you know, the, greater, you know, the, the, the greater reward, the one who's more grateful for having their sins forgiven are usually the ones that have the most to forgive. And Jesus reached down and lifted up the face of the young lady. And he said, she has done more for me. She has brought me more glory. She has brought me more honor than any of you have even come close to. You see, she was sorrowful. But in her godly sorrow, she was feeling shame. And in our godly shame, Jesus does not leave us there. He lifts 
our face. Turn your eyes upon Jesus because Jesus will lift your gaze to him. The next that Watson talks about is a hatred of sin in our lives. Yes, you need to hate sin. Period. Paul, in the book of Romans, in chapter 7, he begins to talk about this, this war that's going on inside of him between his flesh and his spirit, that his, his spirit man, his mind wants to do one thing that is right, but his flesh does the other. And he makes this statement. He says, the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. The things that I do want to do, I find myself not doing. And then it comes to a conclusion where Paul pens the phrase, oh, wretched man am I. Who can save me from this body of sin? And then you know who he points to? Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to hate the sin that's in our lives. There needs to be a hatred of things that pull us away from God, that jeopardize our relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to hate sin. In a world, in a time where hating anything is completely and totally taboo, I'm here to tell you that the Word of God says that we need to hate sin in our lives. And finally this morning, we need to have a turning away from sin. I'm going to go ahead and ask the praise team if they will come back up here. And I always in, enjoy um, kind of utilizing a, a college student for this. So, Jonathan, I want to ask you if you would just to come up and stand in this area for me here, please. Don't worry, he had no clue this was coming. Okay, stand right there. Okay. So I want to give you a visual representation of what biblical repentance looks like. To repent means to basically change the direction of your life, to do a complete 180 from the direction you're heading. So, Jonathan, if you wouldn't mind, just take off walking that way. Okay, stop. So, the direction that Jonathan is headed in in his life is at an exit door. He's tired of hearing me preach. He's done. It's over. He's got lunch waiting on him. I'm headed for that door which is sin, by the way. That's all I'm saying. We're going to turn him from that, all right? He's going, to, he's, he's going to experience change here in a minute. The problem that we have is that we come to this place of realization that there is a response required of us because of the sacrifice, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we allow it to stop us. We may even make a confession. We may even come forth and give our confession of faith. We may say the sinner's prayer. We may be baptized, but the problem becomes is that if at this moment when all of that happens, if he continues to walk straight at that door, go ahead and walk. Okay, you can stop now. See, there's been no difference in the direction that his life was pointed. You know what happened to him in that baptistry whenever he was baptized with this type of progress? He went in a dry center, he came out a wet center because there was no repentance in his life heart in his life. There was no transformation that took place. Now, Jonathan, if you would just go ahead and turn around, face me. Oh, Simon didn't say. <laughs> He's probably too young to even know what that means. But anyhow, so go ahead and take off walking again. Now, biblical repentance looks like this. Repent 
means stop, turn around, and go the opposite way. So Jonathan, stop, turn, you already stopped, turn around. Go the other way. His life is going in a completely different direction than what it was. Thank you, Jonathan. You can be seated. Everybody give Jonathan. It's a good sport. It's a good sport. My daughter is usually the one that has to fill that role. And so she is laughing heartily where she's watching at right now. But understand that. Guys, I'm, I'm not presented this message this morning out of a hard heart. We're out of a, a place of wanting to be rough and callous. But from the understanding that we can no longer play around in our relationships with Jesus Christ. We need to be transformed into his image and his likeness. We are in a season of life where you are taking way too big of a risk. Time is far too short for you to have Christ as a supplement to something in your life. We're going to get into that next week, but Jesus Christ can't just be something that you add into your life. He can't just be something that as you are running around with your kids, as you are running around with your spouse, as you are running around with your work that can just be a nice little additive to your life and you'll make time for Jesus whenever you get a chance to. It has to be that he is your life, period. He's not a supplement to it. And we can only get there through true biblical repentance pray with me if you would father thank you for your word thank you for the way it challenges our hearts thank you for the way that it convicts us and god i pray that each one of us would move closer to you and understand that that repentance is not an option that our lives have to be transformed there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, God. That is completely and totally upon you. Father, stir our hearts this morning towards repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.